We're called to disciple others, but first we need to be discipled ourselves. What fits in that job description? If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you know what your job description is? We talked about that last week. And do you know how you ought to relate to others as a disciple? Now, last week, just to refresh your memory, uh, we looked at what this job is all about. We said it was about living a life of love. As Jesus loved us, we are to love other people. We said it was a life of mercy, that God daily shows mercy to us, and we need to show mercy to other people. In other words, we need to kind of cut some people some slack. We need to treat them better. It's about a, a life of transformation. If your life is not changing on a systematic basis, well, I don't know, it, you know if you get an apple, once the apple gets ripe, what's the only other thing it can become? Rotten. I've seen it happen to a banana on my counter. Nice green, gets bright yellow, and then all of a sudden it gets kind of black and fruit flies start swirling around it. You know how that works. Well, you're no different. If you're not growing, you'll be slowing. That's what they say down prison, I guess. We also learned that this needs to be a life of perseverance. We don't just change overnight. It would be really nice if the pastor could, you know, you come into the office and say, Pastor, I really want to change. He, he whips out, you know, some magic wand and goes, presto changeo. We have to hang in there. We're in this journey for the long haul. Now, in this chapter, as we're going to see in a few minutes, Paul deals with the role and status of women in the church. And we're going to encounter some challenges for our 21st century perceptions. And I'm going to ask that you allow me to com fully complete this message before you start coming to conclusions in your own mind about what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. Now, in this first part of this chapter, Paul states the objective for every believer. He said every believer should have, this is verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In other words, you and I ought to live our lives in such a way that we are not drawing attention to ourselves, but instead we should be drawing attention to the God whom we serve. And Paul says if we're going to do this, if we're going to live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness and holiness, then there are four values that as disciples we need to learn. Here's value number one. It is the value of prayer as a first resort. By the way, there is an outline on the inside of the back cover of your bulletin. You'll follow along. But we want to value prayer as a first resort. I still remember the first time this happened to me. Somebody came, says, Pastor, I got a problem. And they, did, they kind of dumped the problem across my desk. And I said, have you prayed about it? He says, has it come to that? I mean, it was like, I've tried everything else. Well, of course, the worst one that's worse than that is when people said, people said, I've tried everybody else, so I finally came to you, Pastor. <laughs> Somewhere I'm kind of down around the last resort, uh, slightly ahead of prayer for some people. For a few people, slightly after prayer. Verse 1 says, I urge you then, first of all, first of all, he says, that request... Prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
Now, I find it very interesting that Paul would say this, because at the time when he was writing, Christians, the Greek word Christianos, the followers of Christ, were facing fierce persecution under the hand of the emperor Nero. Uh, During Nero's reign, you may recall from world history, Christians were blamed for the fire that pretty much destroyed Rome as, of course, Nero fiddled. This was the beginning of that era when that Colosseum rose to fame in Rome, where Christians were imprisoned, they were tortured, uh, they were eaten alive by wild animals just for the enjoyment of other people to watch. And yet, in spite of that, what does Paul say? Pray for your leaders that we can live quiet, peaceful lives. Now, this principle still applies today in 2012. You know, we have more voice today in society, really, than the Christians, the early Christians. Uh, we have more influence in our society, but our goal st- should still be as Christians, as disciples, to live a peaceful life characterized by holiness. And this principle of praying for your leaders still applies too. In fact, I would say that this applies perhaps more than ever today. What is this year? What's coming up in November? Election. Election year. The campaign trail is already getting nasty. Nastier, it seems, by the moment. Candidates are bad-mouthing one another, and the, the pundits are bad-mouthing the candidates. I don't know if you've noticed, if you watch any campaign ad, this is what really galls me, but how, have you noticed how many campaign ads are not based on vote for A because A is good? It's always vote for A because B is evil. That's kind of the way it's kind of turned out. That's why I, I want to suggest you that maybe this is the year. I don't know, probably every year would be this, but maybe this is the year It would be a good idea for all of us to kind of pull back a little bit on the rhetoric and focus more on praying for the candidates. Praying that God would somehow enable anybody who's running for public office to provide the leadership that this nation so desperately needs. But we don't just pray for our leaders. Paul said we should pray for everyone. Family members, co-workers, friends, Neighbors and even our enemies. People who hate our goods. And guess what? You might even want to add your pastor to that list. See, using prayer as the first resort helps us remember who really is in charge. I don't want to get real political, but I think you all know this. The hope of this nation does not rest in politicians. The hope of this nation does not rest in legislation that they pass or do not pass. The hope of your family, the hope of this church, the hope of your business, the hope of your future does not rest in your own brilliance. Our hope is in God and God alone. Our hope is found in praying as a first resort. That helps us remember that who's really in charge. Here's the second value. Value passion for the lost. Verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's passion for lost people. 
I still remember when I heard this the very first time at a, a conference at Willow Creek Church near Chicago where Bill Hybel said, you know, if lost people matter to God, they must matter to us. I, you know, I knew the Great Commission, but I never heard anybody quite put it that way. If lost people matter to God, and they do, then they ought to matter to us too. This, this verse here kind of echoes another verse in 2 Peter 3 where it says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word passion. Passion. But God has a passion for lost people. And if we truly care about lost people, whatever that word even means, it makes a difference in how we live our lives. I mean, Paul talks about how it even affected his own life down in verse 7. He said, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling you the truth, he says. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Now, some of you might say, well, that's easy for you to say because you're a pastor. You're a preacher. You're somebody who goes and teaches people all the time. You know what I say to that? <clears throat> Come on, get off. You're not going to get off the hook that easy. Not all of us are called to preach. Not all of us are called to teach. But we are all, A-L-L, underline it, exclamation point, we are all called to participate in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we all have a role. It can be as simple as inviting somebody to church. It could be as simple as bringing another child in the neighborhood to vacation Bible school. It could be a short-term mission trip where you... You go and do something. I'm really anxious, Wayne, for example, to take you to Angola in September. And I know what your heart is, and, I, and John, and I'm hoping that we can lock you guys up if you don't drive each other crazy on the drive down, to, to minister to people out of your heart the goodness of Christ. It might be supporting an evangelistic ministry. Or spending time in prayer. Maybe you've got a prayer list and you're just praying for people. Interceding for people who don't yet know Jesus. You know, praying constantly that God would somehow give you a message to share should you ever have the opportunity. See, we need to practice wanting for others what God wants for them. And what does God want? God wants everybody to be saved. And you and I ought to want the same thing. And we should do what we can do about it. I mean, God wants all people to be able to live a quiet and peaceable life just like we would like to live a quiet and peaceable life. We, we should want that, and we should do what we can to do about it. Now, I say we adopt the value of a passion for the lost. That means we adopt the value that says other people also matter. It means that we love other people, everybody, with the same love that God loves us. It means that we want the same things that God wants for us for other people. Value prayer is the first priority. Value a passion for the lost. Number three, value the priority of unity. Unity. Verse 8. 
I want men, I, I'm going to accent that, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, I want you to note something, that sometimes when the Bible translates the word as men, it's referring to all people, men and women. But sometimes the word that is there is referring specifically to men as opposed to women. In this case, in this verse, Paul is talking to you guys that are here this morning. He's talking to men. In the next paragraph, he's going to be talking to the women. But right now, he's talking to men. He has something to tell men about the role of men within the body of Christ. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, here Paul is referencing a general principle and a specific problem. The church in Ephesus, if you remember our last series, those seven churches in Revelation, was struggling with division. This church just did not get along for one reason or another, squabbling and backbiting and complaining and gossiping, and they had false teachers in that mix on top of it, people in leadership who had absolutely no business to be leaders in that church, and as a result there was an increasing lack of unity and the church was about to split. So Paul says to the men, I want you to pray. And I want you to do so in the spirit of unity and I want you to do it without arguing with each other. Now, Do those same words apply to women? Oh, yeah. But here Paul is addressing a specific problem amongst the men in the church at Ephesus. I don't want to offend anybody, but I sometimes think in churches the people who do the most praying are women. And the men are just kind of sitting there on their blessed assurance on their hands. Don't know whether that's true all the time. See, the principle here is that for prayer to be effective, it must be offered in a spirit of unity and fellowship with other people. Uh, Matthew, a little bit later in chapter 5, said, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't want your gift at the altar, whatever that may be, your gift of prayer, your gift of tithes and offerings, your gift, uh, whatever it might be, until you've made every effort to be in a right relationship with other people. Your gifts, your prayers, your worship needs to be done in the spirit of unity. I remember preaching on this text one time at one of my churches, and I said, you know, if you are not right with other people, God doesn't want your gift up here at the altar. And I went on. I happened to notice out of the corner of my eye, and I understand this is a big church, you know, 100 feet from the bottom step to the back door, big church. I see a guy get up and walk out. I don't know. There's a lot of people walking in and out of church. You know, they've got weak bladders or whatever, uh, or sermons too long. They've heard enough. I'm not sure why. But I, I just kind of, he just, but I noticed that he showed up. He was there at the next service after that. And he stopped me at the door. He said, I, I don't know if you saw me leave. 
I said, yeah, come to think of it, I did see you leave. He said, when you're talking about if you aren't right with somebody, go take care of it now. And he said, I had an argument with my neighbor this morning. And I went home. And I knocked on his door. And I apologized. And we made it right. He says, now I'm back to bring my gift. See, one mark of spiritual maturity is that you know how to get along with people. John Wesley said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? Or who was that guy during the Los Angeles riots who said, can't we just all get along? You don't have to agree with everything that somebody says or thinks in order to have fellowship with them. Now, I know some people like you that are totally incapable of doing this. Maybe some of you may be sitting here this morning. But, you know, when they hear a political opinion, for example, or a doctrinal interpretation different than their own, they kind of draw a line in the sand and they are ready to do battle with you. What's worse, I have been in some churches where men have done this over landscaping or over building repairs or parking lot expansion. I've been in churches where there's so much tension sometimes between men over something as silly as the installation of central air conditioning that I'm sure that their prayers never got much higher than the ceiling. Now, apparently, in Ephesus, they had the same tendency. They had the tendency to argue and debate as opposed to pray. So he felt he needed to encourage them a little bit. I want to encourage you all too, man. Don't argue. Don't debate. Don't dispute. Make it a matter of prayer. Okay? Enough with the men. Should we deal with the women? I've been waiting for this. Here's the fourth value. Value a presentation of character. Value a presentation of character. Here Paul starts talking about women in the church. And I'm going to tell you that these verses um, can be a little difficult to navigate, and so I, I want to take a little bit of time with them. There are some things that we encounter in the New Testament part of our Bible that reflect cultural values. In other words, what was going on in that church in that day and age, and they are not necessarily absolute values, you know, for time and eternity. Let me give you an example. In chapter 6, Paul tells slaves how they should treat their masters. He is not condoning slavery. He's telling people how to live within the context of their culture. Now, our job today as we read Scripture is to discern the absolute or the timeless principles that are there and kind of separate out things that may have only applied to that specific time and place. That's certainly the case in this text. Some of what Paul says here applies specifically to the situation in Ephesus, and some is an acknowledgement of the cultural context. Our job is to figure out what the absolute principle is here. Let's look at these words again here. I also went the women to dress modestly. Oh, I suppose we could preach a sermon about that, huh? With decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, 
but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. It also goes on and it says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be (coughs) quiet. Amen. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm not going to let you hang in there. Now, I'll be honest with you, friends. Books, books have been written on this passage by scholars who are far more learned than I. So I don't propose to resolve all the questions related to this passage in the next three to four minutes. But here are some general observations to allay your fears, ladies. The very fact that Paul was encouraging, I want women to dress, blah, 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 I want women to learn, the very fact that he was encouraging, actually commanding women to learn, to become disciples, is a huge step forward culturally. In both Greek and Jewish culture, women were not allowed to learn. In Greek culture, a proper woman was expected to keep to herself, to stay at home, and she was not permitted to leave the house without her husband or her father or some other male counterpart. In Jewish culture, the days of Jesus, women were allowed to attend synagogue, but rabbis did not accept them as students. They were expected, they said, okay, you can come in, but you've got to sit in the back, be quiet. That's why Paul's words here are really pretty radical. When we read it today, it, it almost sounds as if, as if he's trying to diminish the role of women in the church. Actually, the opposite is true. He was encouraging them to expand their presence in the community of faith. Now, Paul's words here have to be interpreted in light of other Bible passages. Sadly, there are church denominations and churches today who take words like this, women should be silent in the church, and they make a doctrine out of it, and don't bother to read other things that Paul had to say around it. What do they say? Text without context is pretext. You're kind of making it up. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about how women should adorn themselves when they pray and prophesy in public. In the book of Acts, Luke talks about the daughters of Philip who prophesied regularly in their churches. Paul also referred to the teaching ministry, the teaching, preaching ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. So why was it okay in some situations for certain women to preach, teach, and prophesy, but in others, like the church of Ephesus, they were told to be quiet? Well, it's because there were different situations in each of these. The church of Ephesus was, was rife with false teachers, And it appears that many of these false teachers targeted women. Women who were new to the discipleship process. So all Paul is saying is, look, women need to be taught. They need to be discipled. And until they're discipled, until they're taught, they should not be teaching. They should not have an authority. 
That's why he said they should be silent until they've been discipled, until they've been taught. The word does not refer to soundless. It has to do with quiet composure. Here's the bottom line. In every church that I have worked with as a pastor, from Redeemer Lutheran in Richland, Washington, all the way through First Lutheran Church in Texarkana, Texas, regardless of where they stood on this particular subject, I have observed something that is true in every last single church. It's this. Without the involvement of women, Sunday school, education, and a whole bunch of other things would collapse. It would fall apart very quickly. In some cases, if women did not have a role of some kind in the church, the church itself would completely stop functioning. Every successful church I've ever been a part of has always had a strong leadership team of women. I mean, the days of when we say to a woman, oh, you're a woman, go to the basement, teach Sunday school and take care of kids. That's not what the scripture says. Any more than it says you're a man, you've got a pulse, you can be an elder. There's a little bit more to it than that. The roles may be interpreted differently in various churches, but let's not use Paul's word to diminish the contribution that women make in the life of this church. I'm going to just point out two of them. Neither one of them know about it. One of them sitting right in the fourth row. Her name is Nancy. As a leadership role with the women in this church when it comes to Bible study. And Clara, first female in 90-some years of this church to be in the leadership capacity as chairman of the congregation. Do not underestimate the value, not just of those two women, but other people like Katie, who's here as our director of Christian education in the leadership role that she plays as she teaches and as she preaches to the little ones in this church. Don't underestimate Gwen Huffman and her leadership in the music ministry of this church. I, I go on and on. Any number of women who have stood strong in this church, not to draw attention to themselves, but to lead us in giving glory to God. I'd be pretty passionate about this. In fact, I'm almost ready to cry. I don't know why. It just... We don't want to diminish anybody. Instead, what we need to do is look at Paul's words and discern what he's saying to us today. And he's speaking specifically to the women in Ephesus, but the inherent principles really apply to everybody because he's speaking about character. He's talking about the value of content over form. That's why he says, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, here's something to consider based on that passage. What is your calling card? 
What is your calling card? What's your signature? What's your defining attribute? Is it the way you dress? Is it your hair, what you do with your hair or lack thereof? Is it your external appearance? Is your calling card your behavior? I've heard some people say, you know, I'm rude. That's just who I am. That's their calling card, sad to say. Is it your attitude, good, bad, or ugly? Is it the way you talk? Is it the way you think about things? See, Paul is saying, if you've got something like that that's out there, whether it's how you dress or how you act or how you talk that's drawing attention to you, maybe you ought to rethink how you dress and how you talk and how you act and how you relate to people. The defining attribute should be based on actions and not appearance. And even though Paul is talking specifically to women in the church, I think this principle applies to everybody. It's not about how you look or what kind of car you drive or whatever symbol of beauty or success you try to project to the world. The signature of a Christian will always be found in what he or she does. Isn't that what the Bible says? They'll know we're Christians by our love, how we treat other people. And see, God is calling us, and he's calling all of us, from pastor down to the youngest person in this congregation, to focus on content, content, more than all of these forms. He's calling on us to be people of character. See, this is really the disposition of a leader, that we strive to lead lead quiet lives, and that we're respectful of other people. And how do you do that? You lift them up. In prayer. And see, we want to do the same thing for other people that God wants to do for us. That He wants us to know Jesus. To grow in the knowledge of Him so that we too and they too can live these quiet and peaceful lives. We do our best to get along. Knowing the strength of our prayers is determined by the strength of our unity. That's why the challenge in this chapter is simply this. We strive to become people of character. Focusing on action rather than appearance, focusing on content rather than mere form. This is how we become shining lights to other people. This is how we bring Jesus to other folks. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, a word that sometimes can seem very puzzling, but as I was taught many years ago, that when you work the Word, the Word will work you. Lord, uh, we so much want to be people who value prayer as a first resort. Teach us to pray. Teach us that our hope is in you and you alone. And prayer helps us remember that. Lord, give us a passion for lost people. You have a passion for lost people, and if we also truly care about you, we will care about the people that you love. And Lord, enable us to practice unity, lifting up holy hands in prayer, not arguing, not backbiting, not gossiping, but instead to pray, to develop a spirit of unity not only in our own life, but in the lives of our families and the life of our church. And then, Lord, may our calling card be one of character. 
Let nothing we do or say or wear or value get ahead of that. We pray this and so many other things in the precious name of Jesus, who has also taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.